We live in an age of incredible choice. Incredible choice. You sit down to watch something on Netflix, you scroll for forever, you just go to bed, you don't watch anything. There's just so many choices, it's overwhelming. If you've ever, you know, done any renovations, incredible choice, endless choice. You go online, you're trying to pick handles or even something like paint. Okay, have you decided on a color, you know, for your cupboards? Yes, we're going to go with white. Okay, well, here's our book of white. You know, we've got snowflake white. We've got cloud white. We've got, you know, white shirt white. We've got teeth toothpaste white. We've got simply white. We've got Fantasia white. We've got Disney white. We've got, I think, salt is a spice white. We've got <laughs> all kinds of white. So much choice. And uh, our lives... Um, being constantly faced with choices, we want wisdom. We want the wisdom of God. And in particular, as the children of God, we want the wisdom of God as we're going through life um, because a lot of the things that, that you're, you folks are facing next week are not necessarily black and white, good versus evil, morality is involved choices so much as you need wisdom for life choices that have impact on you, impact on others, but they're, they're, uh, they're not things that are inherently moral or immoral. Um, should I take this path for education or this one? Should I consider these courses or these? Should I apply for this job? Should I remain in this career path? Uh, should I pursue this promotion? Should I look at... I mean, just there's these constant kind of choices that we're faced with all the time. And we've been doing a study in Proverbs for the summer. And last week we started in Proverbs 1 where we learned that this, the awe and the reverence, the worship of God is the beginning of wisdom because that, that wisdom, as God would define it, is being able to see nuances and, 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 and make choices, applying knowledge based on what God would consider to be right and good and true, what God would consider to be righteous, to desire to glorify Him in, in our lives and the way that we, 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 we act in, in, in the, these choices. We kind of looked at that last week. And um, this week, our text is from Proverbs chapter 3. In a minute, I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Proverbs 3 fleshes this out for us a little more about how, as children of grace, we can grow in God's wisdom by that same grace. Um, The same grace that rescues you, it does a deep reorientation in you. You read Titus chapter 1, that's what he says. He says, this same grace that has saved you, teaches you, and then he gives a big long list in, in, in his pastoral letter about how, what grace teaches us. It's doing something in us internally. So as children of, of grace, we desire to be led in wisdom by the Lord of grace. Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, your vats will brim over with new wine. 
My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son that he delights in. This is God's word. So we've got this metaphor for wisdom in verse 6 there about this path that we're kind of walking through, through life. And when you consider walking a path, um, the image that this is wanting to convey for us is that it's something that you're doing steadily, methodically, rhythmically. It's getting to the idea that the way for us to, to grow in wisdom is about uh, a rhythm in our life. It's like taking steps, our repeated habits, our repeated actions. The, the things that we're continually doing, they are taking us places like a path. They are forming us as people. They are forming our children. They are forming our hearts and our minds. Uh, the things that we do repetitively and that we engage in, in repetitively. And in this per- specific context, it's saying that the things that we're doing, um, as we're walking that path methodically and rhythmically, daily, they're, those things are making us more foolish or more wise. And so character is being forged in these habitual path-like decisions. And so this whole passage is kind of inviting us to consider what patterns are being formed in us, what patterns are being formed in our children. I'm going to give you a, a small example because there's thousands of applications of this imagery of the path, methodically moving along a path consistently, habitually doing something repeatedly in your life. I'll give you an example. You're sitting in a room, you're with a bunch of friends, you're laughing, joking, talking. A debate breaks out. The debate is getting fierce. And all of a sudden, it's blue. And the other, no, it's not. It absolutely is not blue. This situation is red. It is red all the way. No, I'm sorry, I disagree with you for reasons A, B, and C. It's blue, it's blue, it's blue. It's red, it's red, it's red. And somebody grabs a phone and they Google it. And they read, you know, this answer from a particular source and then they read another one and they read another one and and it seems it seems to prove you're wrong now in that moment you've got a choice to make and the choice is either you say oh my goodness I stand corrected the choice is either humility or the choice is you dig your heels in you double down on your decision and you start to say things like, well, you can't believe everything that you read. And, da, 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 da. and instead of choosing humility, you choose pride. That's just one example. But the thing is, in that moment, you're, because you've made that choice, you're now more a fool than you were 10 minutes ago. But if in that moment you had have said, oh my goodness, I stand corrected. Wow, I really got passionate about that, but uh, well, I guess I've got to change my view. In that moment, you've just made a choice along that path that now you are wiser than you were 10 minutes ago because you chose humility. This is a small example that if repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly you were given opportunities to choose humility but you chose to double down and chose pride, you can see where that path eventually, what ends up happening is wisdom is not being forged, foolishness is being fostered. And so that's the, that's the kind of the metaphor of the, the path that Proverbs is trying to get us to see. Do you see the things that are being done in a habitual way where they're taking us? So from this text, we're going to look at a couple critical insights here on how we avoid fostering foolishness in our lives and in the lives of our children. Instead, we can forge wisdom and grow in godly wisdom. And the first thing is, well, there's many things, but I'm just going to choose three because three is a short number that small minds like mine can remember things. So the first thing is to continually commune with God. We get this from verse three. To continually commune with God. Why? Why? Because continually communing with God 
we remember and we rest in the fact that we're children of grace. Now, before you accuse me of saying, oh, you're going to shoehorn the gospel in here, you know, you're getting right to the cross, you're getting right to Jesus, but this text is about wisdom, so Paul, what are you doing? Before you criticize me for trying to shoehorn something in here, uh, and I'm not doing what Dr. Michael Horton would say, you know, you look at Christ in the Old Testament, you can say that Christ was the rock in the wilderness, but that doesn't mean you look for Christ under every rock. That's not what I'm doing here. I want you to notice something about the continual communion. When you look at, uh, when you look at verse 3, it says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the table of your heart. In one, habit, in, in one sense, that's something we're supposed to be doing. But where is this love and faithfulness, though? What is this speaking of? As we look back on all of Scripture through the lens of the cross... We recognize, well, of course, we as the people of God want to live loving lives and be, be faithful. But ultimately, Christ has fulfilled this. He was perfectly loving, perfectly faithful. Therefore, what we're supposed to never forget, what we're supposed to latch onto, is not our own love and our own faithfulness, but ultimately that Christ was perfectly loving for us. Christ was perfectly faithful for us. We are now children of God. And as children of God, we want to live now in communion with him. Because united to Christ in communion with him, he is now able to do something glorious and beautiful with us. We want to remember and rest in the fact that we're children of grace. And here's why. Because God's grace for you, this gospel, that week after week we we revel in, it is the foundation of having wisdom forged in you. Because in hard times, when you are facing a hard time, when you need to make a difficult decision, when you need wisdom, your soul will be at peace and not in a panic. If you remember the gospel, if you remember that you are a child of grace, if you let his love and faithfulness never leave you, if you bind it around your neck, do you see the text through the lens of the cross? If you're looking deep inside yourself for faithfulness and love, there's going to be moments when that round runs out pretty quickly. And in a hard time, when you've got to make a hard decision, when you're in suffering, where are you going to muster the strength to be able to have peace to make the wise decision? It is remembering that you are a child of grace. It is remembering that you are a child of God. I'll say it this way. I'll use a football analogy. There's a term in, in football when you're watching football, and they'll talk about how quarterbacks have poise in the pocket. Poise in the pocket. They're in the pocket. They snap the ball. They're in the pocket. Now there's three or four or five big, humongous, muscular behemoths running towards them at full speed. Right? They weigh as much as a Honda Civic. They're moving towards them like a 747 out of Baltimore. There's a reason for panic. And what, what the commentators will always say is the mature quarterbacks, to use, to use the uh, uh, Proverbs vernacular, the wise quarterback has poise in the pocket. The rookie panics in the pocket. The wise quarterback will make a wise decision under pressure, and the foolish quarterback has no poise under pressure. It's just pure panic. There's no peace. So, so the beginning of wisdom, being able before we even get into unpacking how we begin to make those life choices, we've got to remember who we are. We are children of grace. We've got to remember that we are resting uh, in, in a newfound identity. That gives you poise. You're not just dealing with a stressful thing at work like everybody else is dealing with it at work. You're a child of God. That's a different narrative. You're not just one of thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of students at university grappling for what to do next with their life. 
You're a child of God. You are a child of the king. You are a child of grace. Your life is in his hands. That will give you peace and not panic. That will give you poise in your pocket. I remember you know, when I was in high school and I played football, I was a running back, and my job was not to throw the ball, it was to run it. But one time, and all, all the years I played football, one time they asked me to pass it on this particular play where they, they hand it off. You run for a little bit, you make a pass. And I threw an interception because I had no poise in the pocket because I just freaked out because I couldn't think about what, I was supposed, what a wise decision would be because I was just focused on all, everything that was coming at me. And so much of our life can feel like everything is coming at us. The pressure is to make the right decisions all the time, but we've got to, con- this is why we want to continually commune with God. Go back to verse 3. It talks about never letting these things leave you. Well, how do you do that? Through the communion, right? Through the, 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 the resting in God's grace, knowing at your core that God is for you, that in Jesus Christ, he's gone unfathomable lengths to save you. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is what enables you to, through a, a daily routines of prayer and of meditation of the scripture and and teaching your children to pray and teaching your children to enjoy the scripture as we gather here weekly this is forming you as you bring your children here weekly when they say well it's sunny outside I don't feel like going to church today sweetie we're going to come and we're going to worship God and here's what it's formative it's a path it's you want when you are praying and reading God's word it's not just merely you that are doing something God is doing something we're going to touch on that a little bit later And it's forming that wisdom in you. So we want to continually commune with God. The second thing is to continually trust God. Continually trust God that he will guide you and provide for you and care for you in all things by his grace. When you look at verse 5 and 6, it's a familiar portion of the proverb that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Right? Lean not in your own understanding. Trusting God with all your heart. We're, we know none of us are doing this perfectly. Jesus was the only one who trusted the Father perfectly. But yet we're united to Christ. And therefore we should desire continually, though imperfectly, continually desire this trust. And to walk in it and to do it. Why? Because it's possible to believe in God for your eternal security and trust in something else every day for your day-to-day security. Possible for you to be here and be like, hey, I'm on the Christ alone bus. Yeah, you are for salvation. But day to day, you're trusting in other little mini messiahs for your day to day security. You're staring at the bank balance, you're looking at your relationships, you're jockeying for position at work. There's a long laundry list of things we can trust in our skills, our abilities, our education, our transcript, trusting in things for day to day security. What verse 5 gives us is, you know, if we continually along that path, habitually and repeatedly learn to turn away from these many messiahs and trust in the Lord, trust that he will guide you and provide you, you know, provide for you and care for you, that's going to, again, give you peace and poise in the pocket and not panic when those moments come where you require uh, wisdom. It's going to change the way that you relate to God. See, if you relate to God, if you, if, if you trust God for eternal security, but you trust this small thing over here for day-to-day security, then really you're not relating to God like a loving father. You're, re- you're going to start relating to him like a genie that grants wishes. You can be very frustrated when he's not granting your wishes because you're kind of like, yep, I'm on the Christ alone bus, memorize, got the five solas memorized, got it down, understand why I'm saved. It's by grace. Preacher, just tell me I'm justified and send me home. Right? Like if that's the camp we get in, but then day to day, 
we're trusting in the small thing, we relate to God like a genie. And it's frustrating to Christians who do that because slowly as you walk along that methodical, rhythmic path of relating to God in that way, um, instead of coming to him in prayer to have your heart and your mind brought to a place of peace and rest and clarity so you can move forward with confidence in the decision you need to make, you're really just kind of coming to God like a skip the dishes situation, and that's what your prayer is kind of like. It's like, hey, I need that, and one of those, and that on the side would be great, and if we get that next Thursday, thank you, Jesus, and then that's kind of the extent of our prayer life. But that's not, God has given us something much deeper and more rich uh, than that. His love is cross-shaped for you. It says his love is cross-shaped. The gospel says I held nothing back from you. I went to cosmic lengths to save you. You're my child. I love you and I've got you. You can trust me. Not Not just trust me with your eternal security. You can trust me with this decision that you're facing right now. That I'm on the other side of it. I'm going to work it out for the good of your salvation and for my glory. You can you can trust him. When you um, look at verse 9, you notice where this conversation about trust goes. Of all of the practical examples that could have been placed there, verse 9 says, honor God with your wealth. And, you know, throughout the scriptures, you continually get these conversations around wealth and money. And, and the reason for that, of course, is because that's one of the easiest places for us to go, and it always has been, um, for security. I trust God for my eternal security, but I trust my bank balance for my day-to-day security. So this text says, honor God with your wealth. It's interesting that the, 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 the text takes us to go there because it's poking at, the text is poking at the go-to mini Messiah for the human heart. I know my future is secure because I have wealth. No, your future is secure because you're a child of God. Your future is secure because you're a child of grace. You're going to relate to money very differently when you, when you actually revel in the gospel. And that's what this, begins to, uh, this text begins to provoke. Here's the third thing. So firstly, we want to continually commune with God, right? Remembering and resting in the fact that you're a child of grace. Secondly, you want to continually choose to trust God, that he's going to guide you and provide for you and care for you in all things by his grace. And then finally, the third thing is we want to continually choose to submit to the word of God. It will reform your heart and recalibrate your affections and renew your mind again by his grace. Look at verse 6. It talks about submitting to the word of God. It says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, he'll direct your paths. In all your ways, submit to him, he'll direct your paths. You kids that are in the service, what does it mean to acknowledge your parents? Right? If your parents, if you're, let's say you're playing outside because it's a hot day and you're visiting, maybe you have a pool or you're visiting a friend who has a pool and you guys are running around the pool. Yay! And your parent looks over and they say, and they say, hey, careful, do not run around the pool. Stop running around the pool. What does acknowledging them look like? Thank you for that piece of wisdom. Woohoo! It doesn't look like that. Acknowledging them doesn't mean like, I merely acknowledge you exist. I'm going to now continue on my path. Acknowledge, it can also be translated submit, which is why I use that translation. It's saying, it's saying to submit. So tr- running around the pool and acknowledging your parents would mean you stop running around the pool. You're like, you know, wisdom would be to stop running around the pool. So the text here gives us this, and it says he will make our paths straight. 
So the course over the course of your life, we tend to try and shrink everything down when we feel like our life is not very straightened out. We say, I've been trusting God for seven days now and I don't understand why my life is not straightened out. Well, relax, little, uh, little church. None of, our, li- none of our, li- our paths are perfectly straight, but they are increasingly and over the course of our lives, God is faithfully guiding us. Faithfully guiding us and caring, caring for us. This is his promise to his children. Regardless of what comes across our paths, he even guides us through those, the trials and the, tra- and the tragedies. And so many commentators who've written on the book of Proverbs all say the book of Proverbs is essentially trying to take God's law and figure out how do we really apply this to our daily lives. And you see this massive theme of trust. It's a constant theme through Proverbs of trust. It's a constant conversation in the New Testament about trust. And when you read the prayers of the New Testament, they're loaded with calls for us to trust. Which is a very different way for us modern North Americans to think about relating to God. Because we, we like the idea of kind of more tit-for-tat action steps that result in certain things. You know, just tell me what to do, and then this is going to result in a certain thing. Well, the, the Proverbs in some ways seem very tit-for-tat. But then we're going to get to a verse in a minute that kind of makes us realize, now hold on a second, life isn't just tit for tat. We don't want to be religious fools that relate to God thinking, well, I just do this and God does that and that's the way that life works. We're, the, the prevailing theme is this trust in God, that even in things that are sorrowful and terrible, that he's got you, that, his li- that your life is in his hands. And so I want to make a quick note before I move on. For those of you who here may be exploring Christian faith, considering Christian faith, you need to know this. We do not read the Bible. I'm not calling the church to continually, you know, commune with God, prayer and trust and reading the Bible because by doing those things, God accepts us. We do those things because God already accepts us. By his grace, he's already accepted us. He's already received us. He's already blessed us in Christ. And now from this place of freedom, we're not earning anything from God from doing this. We're not earning from God by reading his word. We're wanting to be guided by God, and that's why we go to his word. There's no earning in this, and I need, for those of you who are exploring Christian faith, trying to wrap wrap your mind around this, Christian life is not about doing things so God accepts us. This is done from the heart of freedom because we are already accepted. And so, because we see God's word as a faithful guide, we immerse ourselves in it, it makes us wise because when we're reading it, I touched on this earlier and I expand on a little bit now. When we read God's word, it is reading us. It is reading us. It is doing something in us. It provokes things in us. And that's how it makes us wise. It's not a text like every other book. You just go on Amazon and get a self-help book on how to be better at something. The, the word of God reads us. Hebrews chapter 4 calls the word of God living and active. Psalm 119 echoes this proverb by saying that it's a light that guides our paths. And James chapter 1 and verse 25 describes God's word as the perfect law of liberty. Think about that. Liberty is freedom. So the more that you're staring into it, it's bringing freedom to your heart, to your mind. How is that? It's because the word of God is, God's very words are doing active work in us. When I was at my convocation, To get my degree from seminary, Dr. Lamerson said this to all the students. He said, you're getting your master's degrees today, but I hope none of you think that means you've mastered God's word. I hope all of you understand that God's word is mastering you. 
And my degree doesn't say Master of the Word of God on it. <laughs> that would be really weird. The, the Word of God is to master me. It's to master you and to master our children. Make us, make us wise and liberate us because the gospel liberates our hearts and our souls. And so that's why we encourage our, our children in that. Verse 7 goes on to say, don't be wise in your own eyes. And so we, we, we do this trusting of God and submitting of the word of God. But when it says don't be wise in your own eyes, that's, that's community language. You know, the Christian faith is a communal faith. That's very countercultural. It's more popular to just be an individual spiritualist, kind of come to church if you feel like it, live in isolation, not really be connected. But you, the only way to not be a fool in your own eyes is to be surrounded by other people who are also submitting to the word of God. The instruction is to acknowledge, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Have you ever looked at a photo and said, I don't look like that? And your friend's like, yeah, you do. Have you ever heard yourself in a recording and you're like, my voice doesn't sound like that? And your friend's like, it's exactly like you. Because you can't see you. But everybody else can see you. And we're all like, yeah, you do sound like that. So as we live in community, as we are individually submitting to the word of God, teaching our children to marvel at Jesus and submit to the wise guidance of the word of God, we need to be in community so that we're surrounded by others who are also submitted to the word of God, who can lovingly and graciously, you know, um, help, help bring wisdom into our lives. The, the person who's never gone through anything is a shallow person. But people who've been through stuff, they'll always tell you how that sorrow, how that tragedy, how that trial, how that suffering made them wiser. People always talk about suffering in that way. So to be in a community of people who are submitted to the word of God, who've all gone, gone through life as you're going through life, and to encourage you in the wisdom of God, that's a tremendous blessing, uh, tremendous blessing in your life. And when you get to, to I'm going to touch on verse 9 again, where, it, where all of this is this wisdom is being played out and then you're given this analogy about instructing, uh, being instructed to honor God with our, with our wealth. You know, it goes without saying that God doesn't need our wealth, but all throughout Israel's history, um, Israel, the, the children of God were told to honor God, bring, bring, uh, bring their wealth, you know, to the temple for the furthering of the work of the temple, for the furthering of the work of God. They were commanded to do that, but why, why were they do that? Because we know that God doesn't need wealth. You see, as children of God, you're invited to see your life in a new way. You're invited to see your life in a liberating way. Your future is secure, not because you have money, but because you have God, because you're his child. Living in that reality, it will absolutely change the way that you uh, relate to your finances. And so really, what this whole proverb is kind of culminating to is it's, it's provoking you to ask yourself what narrative you live in. Right? If there's only the natural world, if this life is all there is and the only happiness you're ever going to get is right here and right now, how are you going to relate to your money? How are you going to relate to your wealth? But what if this life, though fallen and broken by sin, is being renewed and this life that you're enjoying right now is actually the shortest part of your existence? What if you're living out of that narrative? You're going to relate to your wealth, wealth in a completely different way. You're gonna, it's going to be completely different. Right? So how much, how much do we give? What does it mean to honor God with our wealth? If we were to look at that problem and go, well, then what should I do? How much am I supposed to give? Don't ask God for a number or a percentage. 
Ask God for a revelation of his grace, his love, his gospel for you. And as the gospel of grace grips your heart, generosity will flow from that. But until the gospel of grace grips your heart, you will, generosity will not flow. You will not be able to honor God with your wealth. You'll be very stingy with your wealth because God will be your security for maybe eternity, but he's not gonna, you're not going to relate to him like your day-to-day security. You're going to relate to your wealth like your day-to-day security. And that's precisely why Solomon drops this wealth bomb right in this whole conversation about trusting the Lord. To, for you to live out of a new narrative, whose life, who, 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 who's got your life in the, in the palm of their hand? It's not your employer, it's, it's your heavenly father by Christ alone. When we get to uh, verse 11, it says, do not despise God's discipline. He's, it, it, God's discipline is motivated by love like a father, a father that will bring painful conversations into the life of their children for the benefit of their children a loving father will even bring painful consequences into the lives of their young children to teach their young children right if you, if there's a father here and he's like i never discipline my children because i love them probably a lot of us would say we're i don't know that that's a good definition of love letting your children you know free-range kids a loving father is going to bring wisdom and sometimes that wisdom is painful And you know, the reason why that verse is so important is because it spoils tit-for-tat religion. It spoils the idea, the the religious fool thinks, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do that, and then, you know, God is obligated to make everything in my life, you know, be okay. God will keep bad things from happening to me. But what this verse teaches is, is, no, 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 children of grace say, I will do this, I will do this, I will live like this. Because regardless of what happens, my God is with me. And when you look at, the, when you look at this whole passage leading up to this point, it, see, it sounded pretty tit for tat till verse 11 showed up. It looks like do this and that, you get peace and prosperity. Do this and that, you get favor and a good name. Do this and that, you get straight paths. Do this and that, you get health and nourishment. And then bang, verse 11 comes in and goes, but don't despise the chastisement of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, those hard times in your life. You say, what? I don't understand. How could this possibly be loving? How could this be good? Our life is not pain-free, and if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you, you're exploring Christianity, but right now maybe you describe yourself as agnostic, your life isn't pain-free. Nobody's life is pain-free. Our family spent this week with some folks, some friends of ours, going through tremendous pain, grappling with death in the family. We're at an internment this week. Nobody's life is pain-free. The Christian is not immune to pain, But what this text is telling is we are not alone in our pain. See, we don't have a God who's vindictive about pain or angry or, 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 uh, you know, and, and indifferent about our pain. Jesus Christ is well acquainted with pain. In this fallen world, broken by the sin of humanity, by our own doing, God's discipline, it often takes the form of permitting pain. Yet he promises to be with us in our pain, guide us in our pain, and use our pain to make us wise. Nobody's life is pain-free, but for the Christian, God even uses the pain that he permits, that he allows in, whether through our foolishness or the foolishness of the world, he uses even that to to bring wisdom in us. Our God is so great, he can use things that are nothing like him for his purposes. He's that good. 
He's not so small and handcuffed that he needs your life to be roses and everything to be beautiful for him to say, see, I'm God. He can have travesty as black as black. You can paint it with a black brush as terrible as it can be and he can use that for his glory. He's that good. And so we can be wise and we can trust God in our suffering because Jesus is a king who understands our suffering. Who for your sake, who's already taken the punishment for your eternal suffering and in the end, he's going to eradicate all suffering. See, this, this, this text, as I, close it here, as I close the sermon here, it says, you know, he's like a father that loves the children, loves his child. You know, on the cross, Jesus didn't call God Father. All the time, Jesus called God Father. But on the cross, Jesus called God God. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was cast out so that you and I could be brought in. His expulsion meant our adoption. He was rejected so we could be embraced. So church, may we continually commune with God, remembering and resting in the fact that we're children of grace. May we continually choose to trust God, that he will guide us and provide for us by his grace. And may we continually choose to submit to the word of God because it reads us and it will reform our hearts and recalibrate our affections and renew our minds by his grace. Know that God delights in you. Know that God loves you. That in Jesus Christ, by grace and faith, God is reconciled to you. He is with you. And let that gospel grip your heart. Let it grab you. Because when you find yourself in suffering, suffering won't break you. Suffering won't harden you. Suffering won't destroy you. Because the gospel has produced wisdom in you. Because God's grace has produced peace and poise in the pocket, not panic. Let's pray.